are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and other platforms, and if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. And if you become a supporter at any level, even just a dollar, you'll have access to my patron-only materials, such as my last installment of the History of the United States in 100 Objects about America's oldest bowling ball. So I'm going to pick up now chronologically where I left off previously discussing Anglo-Saxon England in this age from about the 700s till the 1000s that can more or less be called the early Middle Ages in England. I discussed before how the basic foundations of early English society were really laid in the Dark Age in the 5 and 600s with a society organized around small local groups called hundreds and also around manors and consolidated into a series of seven Anglo-Saxon and Jute kingdoms. So that's why this period also sometimes is called the Heptarchy, the rule of seven. And these basic foundations of the new society in Britain, in this zone that we now call England, were really dramatically put to the test by the onslaught of Viking attacks and Norse invasions starting in the 700s. So if we back up for a second and look at how England was functioning around the 700s, there were, as I said, these seven kingdoms founded by different groups and tribes of Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. And just to recap, their names were Northumbria, East Anglia, Mercia, Sussex, Essex, Wessex, and Kent. And at different times, one or the other of these seven kingdoms would grow particularly large and powerful and would demand some form of fealty and recognition of their supremacy from the other surrounding kingdoms. So you can actually divide up the Dark Age and the 8th century into different supremacies, as historians sometimes called them. So first you had a Northumbrian supremacy, especially in the 600s, then later Mercia. And in the mid, if we look at the mid-700s, just before the Vikings show up, the kingdom of Mercia, basically in the central interior zone of Britain, was the largest and most powerful, and their king Offa, O-F-F-A, he was very conniving and ruthless, and he was really striving to compel these other kingdoms to recognize his supremacy and in some way rally around him in a kind of single Anglo-Saxon power. But meanwhile, at the same time, he also wanted to just hold off and really defend against the Celtic or Celto-Roman opponents who were still out there to his west, especially in that western zone that we now call Wales. At that time, it was probably called simply the Brotherhood or the Confederation, but we now know it as Wales. And Offa famously ordered the building of a 150-mile-long dike a sort of wide defensive ditch running north-south basically along what is now the border of England and Wales. So in retrospect, sometimes people see this as sort of the birth of some notion of England, of a unified England, as against the Celtic states that still remain to the west. But 
probably that's not how Offa was thinking of it. He just wanted to be the supreme most powerful ruler in Britain. And to that end, he believed he could bring the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms into his orbit, but not Wales. And so he had this dike built, probably partly as a defense, but really more so as just a demarcation line. A lot like Hadrian's Wall had been built by the Romans, mainly just as a kind of boundary marker of Roman territory. So the battle lines, you could say, of Britain were being shifted and redrawn. And instead of having the old north-south orientation with southern powers trying to defend against barbarians to the north, now instead you had this large, somewhat consolidated Anglo-Saxon zone defending against the Celts in the west. So things have shifted and there may be at least some sort of vague idea of a larger Anglo-Saxon realm or zone or country starting to take shape. So that's basically the state of affairs as of the year 787 when the Vikings first start to show up and undertake small raids by boat and ship. And Viking is a term that we often use today that's very evocative. It comes from the Norse language and it technically just means raider or attacker. So the people who were starting to come over in boats were Norse. They were from Scandinavia, this whole area that's now Denmark, Sweden, Norway. Their language was Old Norse. They had Norse gods. And they had subgroups with their own names, like Danes. But when they showed up to rape and pillage and destroy in their ocean-going ships, that's when they were Vikings. So when they're sitting at home, they're just a Norseman. When they're going out raiding, then they're Vikings. So these Vikings start appearing in the late 780s. And they rain down some degree of destruction, but maybe not all that much more than people were accustomed to seeing from time to time from internecine wars within these Anglo-Saxon realms. So it didn't necessarily raise big alarm bells until the year 793, when a Viking party attacked and sacked the monastery of Lindisfarne on Holy Island in Northumbria. And you might remember from when I talked about the Dark Age, Lindisfarne was one of the great sites of art and learning and wealth in all of Britain. And it was a major center of the spread of Christianity around Britain. A lot of the great artwork like the Lindisfarne Gospels that we still think of from early medieval England were made at Lindisfarne. And it was in what seemed to be a relatively safe location on a rocky, craggy island on the far side of a tidal estuary on the coast of Northumbria in what's now Yorkshire. So it was a fairly isolated, inaccessible place until a Viking ship shows up. And the thing about these Viking ships is that they were strong enough and large enough to travel by sea but they had a very shallow draft. They were designed to distribute the weight out. They don't have a deep, heavy keel like a sailing ship that we would see today. And so they're able to navigate into really shallow waters along the seashore or even up into estuaries and rivers and into the land. And they could move quickly through these shallow waters. So they might show up on the horizon and within minutes, Viking men with axes and maces and swords are charging in and attacking, raiding, burning, or kidnapping, as they did to many people as well. That's what raiders often do. They kidnap people to act as scouts or translators. So Lindisfarne was an incredible sitting duck. It was a monastery of unarmed monks. And this attack on Lindisfarne signaled that suddenly all sorts of places that previously had seemed very secure were now right on the front line of this new attack. Why did these Vikings show up at this time? We really don't know with any confidence, but it seems it probably was driven at root by population growth. 
Just like several hundred years earlier, in the 300s and 400s, people like Goths and Angles and Saxons had suddenly charged out of their homelands in the Baltic, whether by land or by sea, they started spreading out and attacking and seizing land and gold wherever they could, probably also at root because of population growth. So for some reason, there was another wave of this population growth and expansion in the 700s, a bit further north, up in these areas that are now Denmark, Sweden, Norway. So this was a new wave, you could say, of barbarian invasions. And it seems that for a certain period of time, these Norse Vikings tended to set out to the east and attack over along the shores of the Baltic. But at some point, they turned west and began venturing not only along the North Sea shores, but even sometimes right directly across the whole width of the North Sea, which was a pretty daring thing to do for shallow draft, small vessels, largely relying on human power, setting out hundreds of miles from shore out into the open sea. How would they navigate? They didn't even have compasses. But according to Norse sagas and accounts that were recorded later, the main leader who spearheaded this move of going directly west across the sea to surprise attack Britain was a Jarl or local ruler named Ragnar Lothbrok. The crucial technology that they used was sunstones, so crystals that could take sunlight from cloudy skies. So even when the sun was obscured and you couldn't use the sun to navigate east and west, these sunstones could concentrate and focus light coming from an overcast sky and show you an image of the sun to allow you to then determine north, south, east, and west, even when you're out there on the open sea where it's often cloudy as it, as it is in the North Sea, which has a very wet climate. So supposedly, Ragnar Lothbrok and his sunstones made this new wave of Viking attacks on Britain possible, where it had not happened before. We don't know this for certain. It was not recorded in any detail at the time. What did these Vikings do? Well, their wave of attacks on Britain, it seems, was actually quite a bit like the descriptions of the Anglo-Saxon invasion but it was actually bigger and more violent and destructive. They were using these small, shallow draft boats to suddenly appear inland, attack all kinds of settlements that were too small and too far apart to be defended by a large army. And they would raid, they would steal people and gold, they would destroy any fortifications, And then once they had basically cleared an area out through their raiding, they then would start to colonize. They would send ships carrying food and lumber and leather and basic supplies that they needed to then create a hall, a shed, dwelling places. And so they started to aggressively colonize and expand into Britain in several distinct groups with different leaders. And some of these leaders, it seems, claimed that they were sons or descendants of Ragnar Lothbrok, but we can't really verify that for certain. But there were distinct tribes and branches that moved in, reigned in destruction, and then colonized in East Anglia and Essex, and sometimes even far into the interior in Northumbria and Mercia. It seems that after a few years, they then paused. And for about 40 years, from 795 to 835, the violent raids stopped. There was still migration and settlement of Norse people in these zones that they had taken over along the eastern edge of Britain. But it seems that they were more focused on consolidating the territory that they held, and the violent raids and attacks stopped for several decades. For some reason, in the year 835, the raids resumed, maybe simply because those Norse-controlled lands had grown too crowded, and there was now again an excess population of men who wanted wealth, power, land. And so the Viking raids resumed, and by the mid-800s, these Vikings, or Norsemen, 
who had come largely to be called Danes as a sort of general term for Norse coming from that area that's now Denmark. These Danes were able to seize control of a large swath of eastern and even much of central Britain and brought it under the control of their kings and chieftains. The Anglo-Saxon states and rulers, it seemed, basically accepted this new status quo and sought to make peace and coexist for some time with this new Danish realm. So there was another period of relative peace. Until then, the sudden appearance of a new invasion force, a large organized invasion force in the year 865, and the Anglo-Saxons called this the Great Heathen Army. And the Great Heathen Army was able to overthrow and seize control first of Northumbria, and they captured the great northern capital of York in the year 866 and installed a Dane government. And the remaining kingdom of Northumbria outside York was able to hold together for just about a year, but then fell in 867. And then East Anglia followed and was taken over entirely by Danes in 869. So after these Norse takeovers, there was some degree then of stability and a return of trade and prosperity in these realms particularly in the city of York. So it was not a period of just chaos and destruction, but there was a kind of shift over to a new Danish regime. And again, another brief period of peace in the year 870 and 71 until the arrival of another massive invading army called the Great Summer Army in 871. And with this new influx of Viking fighters, most of Mercia, particularly the eastern half of Mercia, fell to the Danes between 874 and 77. The small kingdoms of Kent and Sussex along the south coast were massively weakened and lost much of their land and had to pay gold and tribute to the Danes. And Essex by this time was already gone, completely overrun by the Danes. So the one significant holdout, the one basically intact kingdom that still had its lands, its wealth, its capital, was Wessex, that furthest west Saxon kingdom, covering much of what's now Somerset and Devon. And they were in a comparatively advantageous position. They could retreat if needed far to the west, away from the zones of Danish control. And they didn't have as great a Celtic enemy to their western border. So Mercia had to worry about defending against a pincer attack of Vikings in the east and Wales in the west. Whereas with Wessex, if they went far to the west, there was only the Duchy of Cornwall, this sort of small, much reduced, not very powerful Celtic enclave at the western coast, which already really was effectively subordinate to Wessex. So this then leads to a period we can call the Wessex Supremacy, where Wessex was able to refocus resistance and cohesion and solidarity insofar as it existed among Anglo-Saxons around their own ruling house. And in this way, they helped to pave the way for the formation of what would eventually be called England, some sort of united Anglo-Saxon realm. And Wessex had a long line of monarchs who ruled with the support and consultation of a supreme council called the Witten, including important officials, generals, and nobles. And the line of succession in the House of Wessex was by a sort of tanistry, meaning that the successor of a king, when he died or abdicated, should go to some member of the family, but not always necessarily to the eldest son. It was not strict primogeniture. Instead, the Witten would choose among male members of the family who should take the throne. And so this was a more complex system, and it's somewhat unusual, but you see it in some other places, like the Mongol Empire practiced tanistry. And this had certain advantages and disadvantages. The advantage was that you might have many good rulers. 
The Witten could sum up who had the best support, who had the greatest abilities, and choose a good ruler, but it had the disadvantage of many disputes and infighting and intrigue between different possible heirs. So only Wessex, after about 870, could really effectively hold its ground against the Norse, and the remaining small kingdoms of Kent, Sussex, and Mercia were all forced to become dependent on Wessex in some way. And the House of Wessex and the Witten often even had really the final say in who got to be the ruler. They had virtual puppets on the thrones of these other smaller Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. In the year 825, King Egbert of Wessex defeated the Mercians at the Battle of Ellendon, and this really solidified the fact that Wessex was supreme over the only other large remaining Anglo-Saxon kingdom, which is Mercia. In the year 871, Wessex is under severe attack from the Danes. They're trying, the Danes are trying to eliminate this one remaining holdout source of resistance in the West. And in the middle of this onslaught, Alfred became king. So Alfred comes to the throne at 22 years of age. So he's fairly young and he's succeeding his brother on the throne. And he was actually the one last remaining of four brothers. So hence, he was not really raised and expected to be king. He was the spare guy finally left at like the bottom of the barrel. But he comes to the throne and probably because he is seen as vulnerable, inexperienced, unprepared to be king, he is quickly, aggressively attacked by the Norse. And Viking parties go so far as to sack and occupy the Wessex capital at Winchester. So Alfred had to flee with a small group of supporters from Winchester out into the marshy fenlands over in Somerset, west of Winchester. And we've mentioned these sort of marshy lands before when I talked about King Arthur and Glastonbury and the possibility that Glastonbury might be the historical basis for the Isle of Avalon. So this was a really inaccessible, difficult part of, of Wessex that was a lot harder for the seagoing Vikings to reach or land raiding parties to reach. So it was a classic move for the local people to retreat into these deep marshy fenlands. So Alfred takes shelter in a small village in the Fens where he's able to rally some allies and supporters and build a remote fortress at Athelney and use that as a base then to harass and counterattack against the Danes. So in this case, we have the King of Wessex, a forerunner of the King of England, basically operating as a sort of guerrilla warlord, waging this small-scale campaign against the foreign occupiers. Alfred receives some support from the Mercians to the north and others, who see that they must counter, they must join together to counter the superior numbers of the Norse and prevent them from simply overrunning all of Britain. There are some significant victories on both sides, some battles that Wessex wins and some the Danes, and it leads to several years of stalemate. So hence they must come to some agreement in this stalemate. Alfred is unable to entirely expel the Danes from southern Britain as he'd like, but he does persuade one of the major Norse chieftains, Guthrum, to convert to Christianity. And when a leader like that converts, it's understood to signify that now there will be a basic expectation of peaceful coexistence and trade between neighboring Christian states. So it's hoped that this will end or at least drastically reduce the constant raiding and warfare from the Norse. In return, Alfred agrees to extend formal recognition of Danish control over this enormous swath, basically the whole eastern half of what's now England. And this zone comes to be called the Dane Law, the area where Danish law is supreme. 
Now, Alfred does not waste this piece. Once some sort of interval of peace is established, he immediately undertakes a reorganization of the Kingdom of Wessex for the purpose of defense. He oversees massive fortifications, including large defensive walls across the country, a standardized tax system to create a single stable treasury, a centralized and trained army under the command of the monarch rather than just bands of armed men led by nobles. And he supposedly at least creates the first navy. Now, this is how many people remember and speak about Alfred, but it's not exactly true. There had been royal fleets before, and there had even been royal naval battles fought in the seven and eight hundreds. But Alfred does begin something a bit different. In the year 896, he commissions a new collection of ships, which are larger with very high sides, designed for fighting rather than for transit. The point was not to move fighting men from place to place, as would usually happen, but to actually engage in warfare on the water. And these new ships were designed to have a very shallow draft to be able to easily navigate rivers and estuaries, a lot like the smaller Viking ships. So these ships were basically meant to hinder or block Viking attacks trying to come into the country. He also promoted and supported learning and classical study. He sponsored new schools where they would cultivate classical learning and art. Some people have said that there was an Alfredian renaissance under Alfred's rule in the late 800s. And in many of these schools, especially the primary schools, he commanded instruction to be in Old English, not just Latin. And this would make it more possible for people who were not churchmen or not aristocrats to begin their course of education in their own native language. And this Alfredian Renaissance and this revival and promotion of classical learning probably made possible this new fleet, since this new fleet of ships was modeled on old Greco-Roman galleys. He also finally enacted a standard written law code, or so-called doom book, with written laws based a lot on the Old Testament. It seems that Alfred saw himself as a kind of new Solomon or new Solomonic king. Alfred had come to the throne fairly young, but in the late 890s, it seems he had a severe digestive ailment and stomach pains. We don't know exactly what it was, but he ended up dying in 899, aged about 51. So before I go on to what happened to Wessex and the rest of England, it's important to understand how Alfred is remembered and the way he's been kind of blown up as an English national hero, with or without justification. Many people will point out he's the only English king to be termed the Great. That's not something that the English do often, and he's the only English king to be called the Great, not the only king of England. There's a distinction there, but I'll explain later why that is, that he's, he's specifically the first English king and the only English king called the Great. He was reportedly very popular in his time, even among the public in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And there are sort of folk stories that were passed down and perpetuated about him, but they're not the sort of heroic stories you might expect about some daring move on the battlefield. Rather, the most common story that persisted in chronicles and in oral history through the Middle Ages is about Alfred burning the ash cakes. So what is this story? I mentioned it in my discussion of the historical King Arthur too, as an example of a sort of odd piece of folklore about a ruler. But the story that has been told about him is that when he was basically hiding out in the marshy fenlands in Somerset, he was engaging in small skirmishes, scouting, and so forth with this sort of band of fighters. And at some point, he took 
shelter and rested in a peasant woman's house in the village. And she was in the process of baking some ash cakes, these sort of little bready cakes that you can get nice and crispy if you put them in a hot oven with coals. And she told him, watch these cakes and make sure to take them out before they burn. And he neglected to do this and they burned and she scolded him. That's the story. (laughs) There's no big climax. There's no heroic act. But perhaps this story was told to show how Alfred was not ashamed to humble himself and to undertake the same sort of ordinary activities as an ordinary fighter or even a peasant. And the story ends there. It doesn't say that he then executed this woman for affronting the king. She maybe didn't even know he was the king. But it seems to capture something about the sort of king that you ought to want and you ought to maybe emulate in a medieval realm. He also, as I said, was credited as the creator of the English Navy. And this is not strictly true. That term Navy can apply just as well to earlier fleets. But he did create a sort of forerunner, their first maybe battleships, you might say. And beginning in the 1600s, 800 years later, England actually started to become a naval power. And the people celebrating and promoting the English Navy wanted to have a forebear to point to back in the mists of time. And in the 1700s, as Britain began to become a colonial and imperial power, they often liked to view the Navy as a defensive instrument, not a tool of imperial expansion or conquest, but rather as a defensive bulwark protecting the freedom of England. This was not entirely without historical basis. There were important events like the defeat of the Spanish Armada, in which small maneuverable ships, fire ships, were able to narrowly save England from a massive invasion by the largest naval power that had ever been assembled in the world up to that time in 1588. And later after that, there were often threats of possible invasion and overthrow of the English government by France and other continental powers who were looking to take advantage of the Jacobite controversy and take advantage of divisions within Britain over the succession. And hence, probably the most famous, most, I guess you could say, iconic British national song there's ever been was composed in 1740, Rule Britannia. And it was composed as a song within a court mask or sort of musical play put on for the Prince of Wales about Alfred. So they were drawing on the stories of Alfred and his supposed vision of an English navy and of a navy that would defend Britain and defend the comparative liberty of English people from foreign invasion. This song, Rule Britannia, of course, begins, Rule Britannia, Britannia rule the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. So the navy is seen as this guarantor of English liberty. And among the great ironies of the song is, for one thing, the fact that the navy also was enabling this massive colonial project at the same time and protecting the slave trade in which Britain more and more was the leader, the leading nation. So while it was making it possible for British colonists to enslave thousands of people, Britons at home saw it as protecting them against slavery. Another irony of the song of Rule Britannia is that Alfred himself and his supporters back in the ninth century never, never, never would have referred to themselves as leaders of Britannia. They were not Britons. Britons to them meant Celts, people like the Cornish and the Welsh, who were their opponents, as well as the Danes. They considered themselves Saxons. That was their term for who they were. So 
this song, Rule Britannia, it's so definitive and so beloved by Britons, and it's really, you know, shown forth through the last two and a half centuries as this symbol of Britain. But it's based on, again, this effort to selectively pick out incidents of history and images and associations from history and spin them into national myths. And it really succeeded in that, in creating this new notion of a unified patriotic Britain that is free and Protestant and that is a sea power. So all of that, of course, only came many centuries later. But if we go back to the death of Alfred in 899, after he died, it was largely his children who took up the project of unifying the different Anglo-Saxon realms into a kingdom that might be called England, the Angle country. So within Wessex, Alfred was succeeded by his son, Edward, who was pretty effective and successful at countering the Viking aggression. And he was able to retake Essex to start to actually roll back the Danelaw and retake control of Essex further in the eastern end of England in the year 913. Meanwhile, the western part of Mercia, that chunk of Mercia that still remained outside the Danelaw, was ruled by a local king named Ethelred, and Ethelred married a daughter of Alfred named Ethelfled. So all these Ethel names easily get confusing, but he married Ethelfled, and she basically became the effective ruler of Mercia pretty quickly. And she undertook similar reforms and reorganizations within Mercia, modeled on those that had already happened in Wessex, and a campaign of fortification. And after her husband died in 911, she openly took up rule of the kingdom under the title of Lady of the Mercians. And Ethelfled then coordinated with her brother Edward, the King of Wessex, to retake Eastern Mercia from the Danes. So this move of rolling the Danish territory back continues northward under Ethelfled's leadership. She created a massive fortified city at Chester in the northwestern corner of Mercia on the western coast in order to defend and hold that western shore against Viking raids, which were starting to circle all the way around Britain. When she died, she left control of her domains to Wessex. And so what existed then of Wessex and Mercia were merged together into a larger unified domain. Edward's son Athelstan then took up leadership after him, and he was the first to really put forward openly this idea of a unified England, a single Saxon kingdom to oppose and defeat the Danes. And he was the first to actually use the term Anglo-Saxon. And he called himself sometimes Lord or King of Anglo-Saxons. So that's where the term we use really originally came from. And he made a great effort to bridge the divide between Angles in the north and Saxons in the south and to reach out and bring in Angles who had been in East Anglia, Northumbria, etc. He was able to retake and annex the kingdom of Northumbria in 927. So this huge zone that had once been the most important kingdom comes back under Anglo-Saxon control. And 10 years later, in 937, he won a victory at the Battle of Brunenburg against a combined force of Scots, Danes, and Vikings. So Celts in the far north, Danes in the Danelaw, and Viking raiders coming over from Scandinavia all joined together to try to stop the advance and were defeated. So with this victory, the new kingdom is secured, except in the very far north, where Edinburgh, up at the upper end of Northumbria, was taken by Scots. So this zone that had been a sort of borderland of Angles and Britons now was coming under the control of this new Celtic kingdom of Scotland. But apart from the loss of Edinburgh, we see the consolidation 
of what we now know as England. And in this New England, there were only very small pockets of continued Danish resistance that held out in the east. Most of the Danish territory was brought into England. But there was a great carryover of many Norse customs, uh, words and phrases, place names, cuisine, house design, etc. You see a big Danish imprint on large areas, especially of northern and eastern England. Edgar, a new king named Edgar, came to the throne in 959 as a new ruler of this new kingdom of England. He was aged only 16 but he pursued a policy of internal peace and cohesion and further consolidation. He promulgated a law code for the entire realm, including Northumbria and what had been the Dane law. But there was still a lot of dissatisfaction and resentment towards Edgar and towards the House of Wessex. A lot of these people continued to see Wessex as a foreign power, sort of lording it over them. And there were occasional rebellions, including in Northumbria and also in the Danelaw. His coinage, Edgar's coinage, said Rex Anglorum, or King of the English. So now more and more the term Anglo-Saxon is even passing out of use and English and England are coming to the fore. And in 973, now that Edgar is a mature ruler with a fairly powerful state, he and the Archbishop of Canterbury stage a massive coronation ceremony at Bath, which was still a very important town for England. And at this coronation, he's proclaimed as King of England and Emperor of Britain. So these English and Celtic terms are being brought together and it seems Edgar is sort of making a play to be recognized as the ruler of the entire island. And this ceremony at Bath actually formed the basic blueprint for all subsequent coronations of English and British monarchs. This is where a lot of that pageantry has its root. But only two years later, Edgar died in the year 975, aged only 32. And he was succeeded then by the 12-year-old son, Edward, who, not surprisingly, is pretty incompetent. There's a disorderly reign, and it ends with his assassination only three years later in 978. Edward is then succeeded by his younger brother, Ethelred. And Ethelred rules for 38 years, which is a pretty impressively long reign, especially for this time. But he really has very little to show for it. He was widely disliked, it seems. He was unpopular among both the upper and lower classes. And he was really derided by chroniclers as an example of a bad ruler. In chronicles, he was called Ethelred Unred, which you may have heard has often been translated as Ethelred the Unready, a very amusing moniker for a king. But that's not really the right translation. It's a mistranslation. Unred really means something more like the ill-advised or the misguided. And it seems that he tended to listen to advice from very belligerent, volatile, and even disloyal advisors and courtiers. And he committed many blunders in war, lost many battles he didn't have to, and practiced extreme harshness and brutality towards his subjects, which was not totally unprecedented, but he even went to a greater extreme than most. One thing that happened to work a bit to his advantage that he might have taken advantage of was that there was division within the Dane law. So what remained of that Danish realm was fiercely divided over the question of Christianity, of whether to convert to the Christian faith. And Instead of taking advantage of that, Ethelred basically held back, and rebel groups, dissatisfied groups and tribes within the Danelaw, began setting out raiding. And sort of Viking raids begin again. The Viking attackers are able to win a battle and sack the town of Ipswich. Ethelred failed to counter this effectively and instead retreated inland to the west and began making very frequent payment of Danegeld, or sort of payoffs in gold to the Danes to try to hold off 
these attacks. And that, too, had happened before, but Ethelred did it to a greater extent. Some of these Viking raiders, when they needed support and weren't adequately supported within the Danelaw, they often crossed southward and were supported and harbored in Normandy, this duchy down in what's now France that had been founded also by Vikings. And this Norman sort of quiet support for the Danes increased the hostility between England and Normandy. But in the year 1002, Ethelred sought to resolve this conflict and tension between England and Normandy. He made an alliance which he sealed by marrying Emma, the daughter of the Duke of Normandy. Then in November of that year, just a few months later, he gave an order to slaughter all the Danes in England. Not clear why he did this or why he did this at this moment. Maybe maybe he thought he was coming from a position of strength and advantage with his alliance with Normandy. But for whatever reason he did it, this slaughter led to a reignition of warfare. And it was such an affront and so abhorrent that it actually drew in the support of more Danes from the Danish homeland who then came across the North Sea to support their distant relatives in Britain. So with this new Danish invasion in the 1000s, there was then a very long, complicated power struggle between the English and Danish kings, who contended for control of the throne. And often the decision of who was the legitimate king was judged by the Witten, that council that still continued, into the 11th century, and their support and loyalty often went back and forth. This might not have happened if not for the fact that Ath was so unpopular and ineffective, and sometimes the Witten would actually switch loyalties over to the Norse rulers. So in the year 1013, a powerful Danish king named Sven Forkbeard landed in Kent, and with his forces he marched northward into Britain and gathered support from the Danelaw. He then invaded west into English territory and was able to drive Ethelred out, who had to flee to Normandy. But then, not long after, Sven Forkbeard died, maybe of natural causes, maybe poisoned. He died and was succeeded by his son, Knut, traditionally spelled C-N-U-T, Knut. And most of the leaders of the English kingdom actually readily recognized Knut as the new king. They put their loyalty to him rather than the exiled Ethelred on the run in Normandy. But Ethelred was able to regroup, gather support, build up a fleet, and the following year cross over and counterattack and drive Knut out, who fled back to Denmark. One year later, though, in 1015, Knut returned and attacked again. Many English rallied to his support. There were, it seems, many parties that preferred him to Ethelred. And Ethelred retreated into London, into the capital city of Essex, and then he was besieged there, surrounded by Knut's forces. His son Edwin, it seems, took up command. Ethelred by this time was so unpopular that Edwin took up leadership of the Anglo-Saxon side, and Edwin was able to escape from London, rally a large army, and counterattack. And there were years, it seems, of back-and-forth war and struggle, which ended finally with the kingdom simply being split again, with the Danish king Knut in power in the Danelaw in the east, and Edwin recognized as king of England in the west. So for a few years in the 1010s, Canute actually ruled over a massive domain, what's sometimes been called a North Sea Empire of Norse realms around the North Sea, including the eastern part of Britain, Norway, Denmark, chunks of Germany. And he came to be called Canute the Great. And in this way, you could say Canute was the other king of England who has been called the Great, because he was, for a time in 1013, he was basically universally accepted as king of England. 
And he has been called the great, but the caveat is he was not English. He, and he did not call himself English. He was a Dane. So Knut enjoyed a certain degree of success and ruled over this tremendous empire. But he had a big problem of uniting this realm and combining claims. So to try to consolidate his power, Knut actually married Emma, the widow of Ethelred. So Ethelred died during this siege of London, and Emma was left a widow. And so Knut then marries Emma as a way of trying to sort of shore up his claim as ruler of England. After he died in 1035, there then was a succession dispute because Knut had a previous wife too, a a Norse wife, and he had children with her. But he sort of added on Emma as a second wife, and the church basically seems to have decided, all right, we accept Emma, and we're just going to ignore that first wife. But when he died in 1035, there was immediately a succession dispute between the children of his first wife and his second wife. So the Danish realm fell into civil war and dissension between these different claimants, And in England, there were periods of war and also of very high taxes, because when whenever one of these competing claimants gained a foothold, he would levy very high taxes to fund this continuing warfare. So after seven years of this, the kingdom is now very exhausted and really fed up with this constant succession dispute. And in the year 1042, the leaders of the realm, including the Witten, invite Edward, a son of Ethelred, who had been living abroad in Normandy. They invite him to come to England and take up the throne. And he does so with fairly widespread support. But there are continuing disputes and opposition by different Anglo-Saxon claimants and different Danish claimants. And some people allege, some later chronicles allege, it probably isn't true, but they say that at this point, Edward offered the heirship of the throne to the Duke of Normandy, basically said to the Duke of Normandy, if you support me in this power struggle in England, I will designate you as my successor. And this probably didn't happen because English kings didn't really have that power. It was up to the Witten to choose who would be the successor. But regardless, Edward then comes into England, is supported in his claim by many important powers in the realm and also Normandy. The main major opposing family against Edward is the Godwins, and they have a lot of land and prestige. But eventually the Godwins go to Edward, they agree to lay down their arms, they reconcile with him and recognize him as king. And in return, they want even more power and land. So the Godwin family gets all the major earldoms, the sort of local rulership of the different sections of England, including uh, Essex, Northumbria, and in particular, one member of the family, Harold Godwinson, is granted the earldom of Wessex, that original core of the kingdom in the southwest that was especially large and wealthy and powerful. So you have this kind of uneasy coexistence for several years between King Edward, who now is pretty widely understood to have won the dispute and to be the single king of England, and on the other hand, this Godwin family, who have a sort of uneasy alliance with him. Now, by this time, when the Godwins reconcile with Edward, the real center of royal power has moved eastward. So the House of Wessex that we're talking about began with their royal court at Winchester. By this time, it's moved over to the east, closer to London, and particularly to Westminster. That's now where the real center of government is. And Westminster started out on a marshy island on the Thames River outside London, which was called Thorn Island. And It probably seemed for centuries like just a worthless, you know, waste place on the shores of the Thames. But it was first used as a royal base by Canute, by that Danish ruler, who found it useful for a small outpost that would have access to the sea 
and would be close to London, but not within the bounds of London, and hence could be more directly controlled and run by the king. And this little outpost on Thorn Island was then taken over by Edward, who created a series of Benedictine monasteries circling around London, which could be then centers of learning and administration and communication. The Benedictines were a very learned order, and monks in these monasteries could serve as royal scribes, accountants, messengers, etc. And particularly on Thorn Island, he builds a grand Romanesque monastery, which was really the first big Romanesque building in England with an adjoining palace. So sometimes people in Britain will use Norman as a kind of synonym or byword for Romanesque. This is a Norman fort, a Norman church. But actually, really, the Romanesque style started a little bit before the Norman conquest during the Edward period. And he builds up this monastery and he calls it Westminster, which in Old English just means Western Monastery. He's able to run the kingdom and unify it reasonably effectively. But in his later years, he sort of retreats. He becomes more reclusive. He was very pious. And he spent much of his later years in prayer and isolation. And hence, he came to be called Edward the Confessor, the, the ruler who is always confessing his sins, probably to his friends in the Benedictine Abbey. On December 26th, the second day of Christmas, 1065, Edward was taken ill. And he was attended by courtiers and family members. And reportedly, when he was severely sick and expected to die soon, he turned to Harold Godwinson, that important Earl of Wessex from the Godwin family. And he asked Harold Godwinson to protect the realm and the queen. He then died on January 5th, the day before the last day of Christmas. And the very next day, the, the final day of Christmas, he was interred and Harold was crowned king. This was the first royal coronation to take place at Westminster. And that's where they've all taken place of monarchs of England and Britain since that time. It was done so quickly, just the day after Edward's death, partly because there were likely competing claims. There would be different relatives within the House of Wessex, in the Godwin family, and maybe even from the Norse and others like that who could compete and try to claim the succession after his death. So the supporters of Harold in Westminster sort of rushed to get him crowned king. Among those who did make a play and asserted their right to succeed to the English throne were Harold Hardrada of Norway, who was a distant relative of Knut, and whose friends and relations still considered his line to be the legitimate succession, as well as Duke William of Normandy, who was related to Edward through his mother, Emma, and also who claimed that Edward had granted him the succession to the throne in return for his support. So almost immediately there was question, uncertainty, and disputes over who should replace Edward. And on New Year's Day, which was March 25th, 1066, there was an appearance of Halley's Comet over England, which was seen as an omen, probably an ill omen, marking uncertainty and misfortune for Harold Godwinson's reign. So we'll leave that omen aside, and many of you probably know what happened not long after in the year 1066, but rather than get into that, I'll leave that aside and talk about some basic themes of life and of how history unfolded for people in Anglo-Saxon England between the 8th century and the 11th century. So this discussion of medieval Anglo-Saxon England has been much heavier in royal politics than the previous discussion about the Dark Age. And that's partly because we know more. There are more records, chronicles, 
doom books, law books, and so forth describing royal government in this era than there is surviving from the Dark Age when there are rulers like Arthur who may not have even really existed. Also, this was a time of real tumult and instability in these constant competing claims over both territory and rulership. So it was a time of instability, movement, displacement, in which states, kingdoms, manors, villages were frequently destroyed or forcibly moved, expelled. There was migration across the North Sea, back and forth across the English Channel, and all around the Isle of Britain. And this kind of constant movement and uncertainty is captured in the poetry of the era. So England continued to be a deeply poetic and literary society, as it had been back in the 600s. And there was a great tradition of Anglo-Saxon verse, mostly rhythmic and alliterative verse. And a lot of the most celebrated poems, it seems, were passed down for centuries and were collected in a volume called the Exeter Book, which was collected in the late 900s, but has a lot of poems that came from 100 years or more earlier. And a lot of these poems, especially the most famous ones, describe grief, uncertainty, anxiety at movement, at loss of home, loss of hearth, loss of belonging. There's The Wife's Lament, a poem from the point of view of a woman who is on the margin of her community because her husband has been expelled and exiled. There is The Seafarer, which describes life at sea of having to be a migratory wanderer on shipboard in a land surrounded by cold, often stormy seas. And the seafarer describes having to live among the sounds of birds and animals instead of the sounds of friends and fellows in the hall and the home. And there's a very powerful passage, I think, that reads, quote, At times the swan's song served me for merriment, Gannet's crying and curlew's sound instead of men's laughter, muse singing in place of mead drink. Storms there beat stone cliffs where terns icy feathered answered and called to them. Often the eagle screamed dew-feathered fowl, no sheltering kinsman brought consolation. So there's this longing for the typical Anglo-Saxon or Germanic hall where the men gather around the leader, they sing, they share stories, they share drink. And there's another powerful poem somewhat similar that's often called The Wanderer, although the word in the poem is the Anglo-Saxon word erstapa, which means earth-stepper. And this poem recounts isolation and the creation of a sort of secret inner life that the wanderer has to take with him in his constant travels. And one passage reads, quote, Among the living, none now remains to whom I dare my inmost thought clearly reveal. I know it for truth. It is in a warrior noble strength to bind fast his spirit, guard his wealth chamber, think what he will. Weary mind never withstands fate, nor does troubled thought bring help. Therefore glory seekers oft bind fast in breast chamber a dreary mind. So must I, my heart, often wretched with cares, deprived of homeland, far from kin, fasten with fetters. So this might have been a common experience for many people of having to sort of turn inward and create this concealed secret inner life as you move among possibly hostile realms and powers. And the poem also refers specifically to gold, which, as I discussed back in, in my lectures on the Dark Age, gold was a symbol of social bonds, of status, of belonging. Often gold armbands were given as gifts to warriors or vassals to show their tie to a leader. And so gold comes up in the poem as this symbol of the social bonds that have been broken or lost. 
And he says, quote, Since long ago earth covered my lord in darkness, and I, wretched, sought a giver of treasure, where far or near I might find one who in mead hall might accept my affection. He knows who tries it, how cruel is sorrow, a bitter companion, to the one who has few concealers of secrets, beloved friends. The exiled track claims him, not twisted gold. He remembers hall warriors and treasure-taking, how among youth his gold friend received him at the feast. So I think that these poems convey how the instability, the succession disputes, the internecine wars that kept erupting over and over again in England up through 1066, they could on the one hand be an opportunity for certain people to seek glory to win in battle, but they also took this heavy toll, this constant anxiety and rupture of communities and social bonds and groups. And that, in this sense, these poems maybe show us a lot of the inner cost of war, which some people nonetheless are able to turn and transmute into powerful poetry and lasting poetry. So thank you for listening. And if you want to keep this podcast coming so you can hear about what happens, over the course of 1066 and the centuries after, and if you want to hear all of my patron-only material, including the series on the history of the United States in 100 Objects, please go to my Patreon page and support at whatever level you can, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you. Return your old love way. Return to never, never, never will be slave. Return your old love way. Return your old love way.